Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Our life is frittered away by details. Simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. In the midst of this chopping sea of civilized life, such are the clouds and storms and quicksands and thousand and one items, that if a man would not founder and sink to the bottom, he must simplify, simplify. The only cure is simplicity of life and elevation of purpose. Those are the words I began with last week, words written by Henry David Thoreau from his classic book, Walden. Thoreau retreated to the woods for silence, for reflection, for simplicity, that he might find his way in really living. And those words form the beginning of a series of talks I have named after Thoreau, Simplify, Simplify, but you don't have to rely Upon Thoreau alone. All great religious and wisdom traditions share this in common. One could say that Buddhism is the practice of minimalism. For example, your attachments cause your suffering, the Buddha said. Let those things go. Simplify. The Persian poet, Islamic scholar, and Sufi mystic Jalal ed-Din Rumi said, Humble living does not diminish, it feels. Going back to a simpler self gives you wisdom for living. Moses Maimonides, the greatest medieval Jewish scholar to live, wrote and spoke about God as pure perfection and absolute simplicity. St. Therese of Lisieux, who bore the nickname the Little Flower of Jesus, said, Our Lord needs from us neither great deeds nor profound thoughts, neither, in, neither intelligence nor talents. He cherishes Simplicity. And if we cross over to a secular scientific view, we find the same. Truth is ever to be found in simplicity, said Isaac Newton, and not in the multiplicity and confusion of things. And the greatest mind of the former century, the most influential physicist in history, Albert Einstein, said, everything should be made as simple as possible. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand the subject well enough. But I don't think you need all these quotes. I think you probably feel this in your heart. I think you sense it deep in your gut. You know it in your head. That we are too busy. We are too fragmented. Life is far too complicated. And so is our faith. And that is where I am turning my attention today. One might call it simple faith. 
simple, yes, but not always easy. Simple to understand, more difficult to practice. A goal that is remarkably clear, but not always within reach. There are over 4,000 recognized religions in the world. Five main faiths, but 4,000 derivatives. There are three major schools of Judaism. Four movements within Buddhism. Five sects of Islam. 72 schools within Hinduism. And when it comes to we freewheeling individualistic Western Christians. In the U.S. alone, we have three mega divisions that have splintered and fragmented into more than 200 distinct groups. I misspoke in my Paul Bible study on Wednesday. I said there were 4,500 denominations in North America. I was wrong. More than 250 in the U.S. More than 45,000 in the world. I knew there was a four and I knew there was a five, but my COVID brain still prevents me from pulling up some of those facts. So while I was wrong, I'm sad to report that it was ultimately much higher than I first reported. What do we make of all of this? Well, personally, I don't have a problem with this number. Congregations of any faith should be free to express their faith in accordance with conscience and appropriate to the culture and the community and the context of their situation. But there is one faith element that cannot be lost in all of this fragmentation. There is a main thing that cannot be jettisoned. If you call yourself an Anglican, a Baptist, a Catholic, a disciple, an evangelical, a free willer, a Greek Orthodox, heritage, interdenominational, Jesus only, Lutheran, Mennonite, non-affiliated, Presbyterian, Reformed, Seventh-day Adventist, the Church of God, United Methodist, or Wesleyan. That's 19 of the 26 letters of the alphabet, by the way. I'm not going to go for 45,000 more. That main thing is what Jesus said was the main thing. Love God and love your neighbor. Take away our pulpits, our choirs, our pipe organs or our electric guitars. Surrender the books of discipline, the confessions, even the creeds. Remove the vestments, The rituals, yea, even the sacraments. Tear down the steeples, the megaplexes, and the cathedrals. Give up the book of common prayer, the lectionary, and the meetings of the session. Forget about baptismal fonts and the catechism instructions and the hymn books. Scrap the denominational headquarters and sell the Vatican to the highest bidder. Close every seminary, void every Bible degree, confiscate every copy of the the Scriptures, and still... The faith that God has entrusted once for all time to the saints will persevere. It might even thrive if we did those things. So long as love of God and love of people remained the clarion and crystal clear confession of those who would profess to follow Jesus. For all of those statistics about the number of denominations in the United States, it would seem like the church is doing well. Those are eye-popping numbers. But not so. 
4,000 churches close every year. And that number will rise in a post-pandemic, post-modern world. 50 years ago, more than 90% of Americans identified as Christian. Today, that is less than 60%. And that number is falling every month. Church membership in the United States is already now, for the first time, below the majority of Americans. And as the population ages, or I should say, as the population grows younger, that number will set historically low levels for the next two or three generations. Personally, I don't have a problem with these numbers either. They are necessary. Unless a seed falls to the earth and dies and is buried, there cannot be new life. Jesus said that. And I believe Him. The current expression of church in this country is largely sick and anemic. I don't want to put a pillow over its face and suffocate it to death. But it must pass. It must fall to the earth and die and be buried. It is the only way for something new to be born. It is the only way for some kind of renewal to emerge. A renewal charged by love and compassion instead of grief and grievances. A few weeks ago I was with a group of pastors a gathering of clergy, and they were mostly mainline Protestant pastors. Methodist, United Church of Christ, Baptist. It was a group of wonderful, caring, concerned men and women. And such a gathering, I have to tell you, is a little unusual for me. I have a hard time finding my place among church leaders. I'm not exceptional, I'm no better than they are. I'm just an outsider. Truly. When I left the pastorate years ago, I had no intention of ever rejoining that effort. Thank you very much. I have seen how the sausage is made, and I'm laying off a bratwurst. But since returning, I've only been a part of this. This congregation that some say is sort of out on the edge, and I, don't, I just don't think we're that edgy. I mean, look around this room. Y'all look normal to me. But our congregation has no formal alignment with a larger denomination or a larger body. And this independence became truly evident in this meeting with these, these pastors. They were all, to a person, burdened, about the state of the church, the state of our society, the state of our country. But most had a real sense of paralysis. They were frustrated, mostly by the systems in which they were operating. Their church boards, their denominational structures, their bishop. Their district superintendent, the hierarchy that stifled their creativity, the, the, the smothering structures, the rites and the rituals. One even said to me, I just try to get away as mu with as much as I can get away with before the bishop shows up. It was all about keeping the rules and propping up the very systems that they acknowledged were not working. Working. 
And I said to a few later, look. When the waters are stormy, you got to lighten the load on the boat. You can't keep the boat afloat, sounding like Thoreau, individually or institutionally by dragging along the very things that are threatening your survival. All the heavy, accumulated accoutrements. All the processes and procedures that I know started out with good intention. But now they are like shackles on your ankles. All the points of clarification and confession that once served a purpose. A purpose that's probably more than two centuries old now. All the stuffy management stratum that is now only concerned with sustaining itself and not serving others. That's got to go. And I said, if you can't change it, then there comes a time to find the courage to dislodge yourself from it. Let us take as our example and our instructor, Jesus Himself. In our reading today, we join the conversation in the midst of a sectarian religious debate. First, it is the Pharisees, a group that developed over the 150 years before Jesus was born during the Maccabean War period. Their names mean pious ones, and they were that. They were driven by religious purity. They are a party of the people from the grassroots of Jewish society. Think of the Pharisees as the tea party of their day. Conservative, suspicion, let's make Jerusalem great again. Is their thing. To their enduring credit, they would survive the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, they would find their footing, and they would become the founders of rabbinical Judaism, which endures to this day. They come to Jesus with a question that every conservative has What about taxes? Can I get an amen, right? Jesus gives a smooth, oh so smooth answer. And it confounds them, so they back off. Only to be replaced by a second group, the Sadducees. This group is even older and more established than the Pharisees. In fact, this group is the religious establishment. They run the temple complex, and as such, they hold the upper echelon of class and power. They are wealthy, they are elitist. They are limousine liberals, willing to make almost any accommodation so long as they keep their place and their power. There's nothing new under the sun. Jesus makes short work of them as well. Jesus will not fit their or our political, religious, or social categories. Jesus is not owned. By any one group. And he is impervious to the labels that we would attach to him. That is a talk for another time. I digress. In the midst of this fracas. A thoughtful teacher of the religious law. Steps forward with a question of his own. Of all the commandments. Which is the most important. This is not reductionism. It's not an attempt to minimize It is a search for the essence, 
for the soul of faith. And the teacher of the law knew the challenge better than most. The Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Jewish Scriptures contain 613 individual commandments. 365 of those are negative. Thou shalt not. The balance are positive. Thou shalt. Did you know there were so many ways to be disobedient? And then there was the oral tradition that this teacher had studied his entire life. This tradition which would later be cataloged in what we call the Talmud was a collection, picture please, of 63 books. Today printed on some 6,000 pages with 3 million words. So let's say that you're going to say to yourself in those days, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to study the Talmud. But I'm going to take it light. I'm going to read a double page a day. This page, turn the page, read that one, and then I'll read some more the next day. It will take you seven and a half years to read the Talmud like that. And if you add in the Torah and the Jewish Scriptures, the writings of the Twelve, the wisdom literature, the Psalms, and you're going to take it all and do that same Two pages a day, it's going to take you more than nine years to read the collected words. To read, not to know, not to memorize, not to comprehend. So here comes a man to Jesus who has immersed himself in this tradition, swimming in the millions of words, thousands of commentaries, hundreds of commandments. Jesus, could you help a man out? Could you simplify this stuff for me if you would be so kind? Would you give me your greatest hits? What is the top priority of all of these commandments? With less than 40 words in our English translation, Jesus boils the whole thing down to a nucleus. The most important commandment is this. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. They are tied together because you can't do one without the other. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Love is the solution for calcified legalistic, short-sighted, institutionally obsessed religion. Love is the cure for the compartmentalization of our faith where we can choose greed or xenophobia or racism or rank nationalism on one hand or decency, compassion, and justice on the other. Love is the counterbalance To how we like to exclude others because of their culture, their religion, their lifestyle, their orientation. Love is the way to reverse our corporate failures to find consensus in the face of our most pressing challenges and the way to craft solutions for the common good. Love is the rebuke to we strict religionists who would rather be pious and and right than to be gracious and kind. Love for God and love for neighbor. They are inseparable one from the other. And should, when no other option presents itself, it should set us free 
from trying to reform what can no longer be reformed and empower us to get on with the new, with life, even if it means building something from scratch. Love should break all chains. It should squash all hierarchy. It should tear down all walls. It should simplify all moral codes. It should marginalize all man-made religious restrictions. It should liberate all those who have been chained. It should sharpen our focus, intensify our mission, reduce unnecessary complexity, and shorten our sermons and our lecturing. It should welcome all people so that the only ones standing outside are those who refuse to share sacred space with their brothers and sisters. And even then, if they are unwilling to open their hearts to such love, we never give up on them because love never fails. Now, you might offer a follow-up question here and say, you know, if loving God and loving your neighbor is it, then how do I do that? Because Ronnie, I don't know if you've noticed, but there are some real jack wagons out there that, uh, I don't even like them, much less love them. I understand, and I understand that I can be just as unlovable as anybody else sometimes, and you can too. Again, this is simple faith, but it ain't easy. It's simple to understand. It can be difficult to practice. So my answer to that question is a question. What if we spent our time learning what it means to love rather than celebrating that we are the ones who got it right? What if churches, what if all religions for that matter, Understood that their mission and purpose is one of deepening the human capacity to love instead of pointing out all the differences. The differences that are wrong with everyone else. What if we took the risk of choosing compassion over correctness? What if we took Jesus simply at His word? That our entry into the kingdom of God is not because we have offered a proper prayer or observed a church-sanctioned sacrament. It is because we have made a conscious choice to love. What if our lives became an exploration of that path? What if a life of discipleship was a shaping of that practice, not simply learning religious facts? We might find the answers to our questions. And we might discover that everything unnecessary would simply fall away in the process. And better yet, we just might find the cure for what most ails our society and our world.